Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, California businesses are increasingly taking their disputes with cities, labor, and especially each other to municipal ballots in the form of initiatives and referenda. As a result, voters, not the market, are forced to pick business winners and losers and decide complex development, planning, and zoning questions that are meant to be handled by city governments. Why are these disputes ending up on the ballot? Joe Matthews, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, moderates a panel of political and government leaders who have been involved in such ballot fights, including political consultants Rob Stutzman and Harvey Englander, former mayor of Beverly Hills Steve Webb, and labor advocate Madeline Janis to discuss the trend and its costs. Recorded before a live audience at the Autry National Center as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Joe Matthews. The panel's titled a, a bit dramatically as business abusing the local ballot. Now, to be fair, a business disputes, you know, in the form of ballot initiatives and referendum aren't new. We have direct democracy in California because of a fight 100 years ago between the railroad and many of its customers, like agriculture, who were very upset at how high their shipping rates were. And we've long had, seen in this state and around the country, the phenomenon of what's called ballot box planning, uh, in which voters, not, you know, city councils or planning departments make land use decisions. There was a recent report uh, commissioned by the Initiative and Referendum Institute at USC, which found between the years 2000 and 2006, 67 land use measures, local land use ballot measures involving large scale development on ballots in localities in 18 different states. California had the largest number of such measures, 22. And tonight I'm going to hope we're going to be able to focus a little bit on a trend within a trend. Um, the phenomenon of businesses seeking to make land use policy through municipal ballot initiatives and referendum. In many cases, businesses go to the ballot, face a very expensive, well-funded opposition from business competitors. Here in Southern California, we've seen battles between developer and landowner in El Segundo, hotel versus hotel in Beverly Hills, mall versus shopping center developer in Glendale. Two ballot measures over a rezoning that actually got on the ballot and then went back off in Anaheim between the Walt Disney Company and a developer named SunCal. On the June 3rd ballot, there's a very interesting high-profile campaign, a Measure B in Thousand Oaks. There you have a, the owner of a chain of local hardware stores and citizens who are worried about traffic and large-scale development have qualified a ballot initiative that would require voters to sign off on developments of a certain size in the future. And on the other side, you have Home Depot and citizens who say they're worried about how this measure would affect growth. Each side has spent more than half a million dollars. In our panel, we have to my right here the consultants from each side of this Measure B fight. We have a former Beverly Hills mayor, city councilman, planning commissioner who was in the middle of that hotel battle we heard so much about that went to voters there, I believe, in 2005. And we have, uh, for my money, the top thinker and strategist around issues of labor and work in Southern California. To just to introduce them specifically, Madeline Janis is a co-founder and executive director of the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy. She serves as a commissioner of the board of the city's community redevelopment agency, and she led the campaign to pass Los Angeles' living wage ordinance. She's also been deeply involved in uh, attempting to extend living wage protections to workers in LAX area hotels, a move that drew a, a referendum petition from some of the hotels. We have Steve Webb, who's the mayor of the city of uh, Beverly Hills from March of 2006 through 2007. To my right, Rob Stutzman is one of our state's uh, best-known political strategists and is a principal of the consulting and lobbying firm DC Navigators and heads its California office. He's a former deputy chief of staff and communications director for Governor Schwarzenegger. And Rob has worked in a lot of ballot measure campaigns, both statewide and local, including the current uh, battle in Thousand Oaks. He's on the no side, the Home Depot side. And finally, um, Harvey Englander, who's the president of Englander & Associates and has really been a part of California's business and political life for more than 35 years. He's run all kinds of uh, campaigns, uh, ballot measure campaigns. And he's been involved, I think, in more of these local ballot measure fights than anybody I can find anywhere in the country, including in Glendale, Beverly Hills, and in Thousand Oaks. He's on the yes side of that fight. And I wanted to start by let Harvey frame this a little. Harvey's done battle with both Rob and Madeline in different courts, and I think I should give you the first chance to go on offense. Why are we seeing 
businesses go to the ballot on land use questions? I um, think that the business community is uh, looking at all of the tactics employed by all communities in furthering their businesses. You know, first of all, I, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. When I agreed to participate in this panel, I thought back to the first one of these that I ever worked on, and, you know, was it the Montage Hotel in Beverly Hills? Was it for Jim Thomas and El Segundo? And I realized it was in 1972 when I was retained by a group of Gardena card club owners. In those days, only Gardena had card clubs who were fighting an effort to put card clubs in Inglewood. And they referended, or they retained me to referend the Inglewood City Council action, and we ultimately went on to defeat it so that there weren't card clubs in Inglewood in 1972. So I've been doing, you know, this part of the business for 36 years. So I don't think there's a new phenomenon in doing this at all. I think businesses on a local level in Los Angeles, for example, in Los Angeles County, has been doing this for at least the 36 years that I've been involved in. I think that as we've seen a big uptick in development, as we've seen Los Angeles County sort of close in in parts of Ventura County and Orange County, obviously, where there isn't a lot of room for development, there isn't a lot of room for sprawl, and you are getting more inner city development or inner area developments, the competition for business is getting tighter. And businesses are using this as another avenue. Also, we've seen a rise of lobbyists. Now, I'm a lobbyist as well, and I have to think lobbyists are terrific and serve an important function. But normally what occurs, particularly in a small city, or not, I won't say normally, but what does occur in small cities is a developer, for example, or a, a retailer or someone will go in very early, will tie up a piece of land, will hire the local lawyer lobbyist who knows the city extraordinarily well, who knows the staff, maybe he's a former city council member, and will go in and very quietly lay the groundwork for the development so that by the time the community or a competitor even knows what's going on, this is pretty much tracked down the way. And the only methodology that the other side might have, the competition might have, or the community might have to fight this is through taking it to the ballot box. Our businesses, you know, we've seen the environmental community use ballot measures for years. We've seen neighborhood groups and community groups. Are businesses borrowing from the environmental folks? I think businesses borrow from everybody, but I also think that the environmental community borrows from business and a lot of the tactics. I think labor borrows from business and business borrows from labor. A few years ago, there was a, I believe, a referendum in the city of Inglewood to stop a Walmart. It's the same kind of an issue. We can couch it. It's the community. We, we all have, you know, Rob and I are on opposite sides in Thousand Oaks. There are lots of community, you know, activists and citizens involved in both of our campaigns. Our committee names all have, both have citizens in it or something like that. So I think that there is an interchange of ideas, but more, more likely an interchange of tactics. I want to uh, turn to Steve at this point, because what Harvey was saying about a, a business comes into the city with a new development and you know, has everything locked up before the other side even may know about it or has a chance to defend themselves. So people are going to the ballot, you know, businesses are going to the ballot out of self-defense. From the perspective of someone who's been a, a, a city official, an elected official, a planning commissioner, councilman, mayor, do you think that's fair criticism? Do you see that it's easy to buy off cities, particularly small well, I didn't cities. use the term buy off. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Certainly not in Beverly Hills. I think it'd be pretty difficult to buy off a council person. Uh, most of them have a fairly high uh, <laughs> net worth. You know, each community elects its own officials, and hopefully they look towards the integrity of the people that they elect, and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But the lobbyists, the, the people that represent developers that come before our city in Beverly Hills, there is a process that works both ways. They bring the developer to the council, to the planning commission. Those are meetings that, for the most part, are held at City Hall with staff people present. And what comes out of those meetings at an early stage is the do's and don'ts of the project. In other words, the council members or the planning commissioners are going to say to the developer, look, we can't commit to anything, but if you do this, forget it. You're not going to build it in our city. And I think it's a worthwhile screening mechanism for developers. Nothing is locked up, any development that comes through the city of Beverly Hills. There's a hearing process that, in most cases, lasts well over two years, going through staff initially. Then there are public hearings through the Planning Commission. From the Planning Commission, it then goes to the council. And so a lot of these issues are vetted, certainly in our community, 
the residents are given more than ample opportunity to testify, to give their comments. It's a small town. I mean, people think of Beverly Hills as this big urban area. We're only 35,000 residents. We're surrounded by 8 million people. But I think the process works well. I'm often troubled by the perception in our community of there being a need for a referendum because I really don't think that creates good urban planning to have something like that that go to the voters for a variety of reasons. Well, you and Beverly Hills had this experience. The Montage Hotel wanted to have a development. And in, in 2005, citizens with some backing from the owners of the Peninsula Hotel put it to a referendum. And I, I guess I would ask you to describe essentially what happened there. And also, you know, someone who is an elected official and involved in planning for the city, what impact did having this sort of this planning decision made at the ballot have on your ability to plan? Were there, were there costs for the planning process and for the city? Well, I don't see the, the, the ultimate threat of a referendum impacting the planning decision because that comes after everything's occurred. I mean, you know, obviously there's a, a personal loss when uh, people go around, unfortunately. I was walking with my son in that particular campaign and somebody approached me to sign the referendum petition and didn't know who I was, obviously wasn't a resident of the city and said, you know, everybody on the council got a million dollars. And I said, really? And to this day, my wife wants to know where the million dollars is. <laughs> but in that particular situation, you had an owner of a competing hotel, a Peninsula Hotel. And he was upset with respect to the direction that the montage was going in for, for basically two reasons. The, the first reason was that 20 years earlier, when he built his hotel, he was trying to get an additional four inches of height. And the city council at that time turned him down. And he said, well, you know, if they're going to turn me down, then why are they giving them three extra stories? And I couldn't get three inches. So he, he was bitter. And in addition, uh, he feared, and I guess rightfully so, that th the montage was going to steal his star, the, the manager of the Peninsula Hotel, who is considered the best on the West Coast at running hotels. And, he had every reason to fear that because when he lost the referendum and the hotel was approved and the hotel went up, guess what? <laughs> the manager left the Peninsula Hotel. You're listening to a panel on business and the ballot. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cohen in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Contribute to KPCC today, and you can help restore forests destroyed by wildfires. Contribute $10 a month, and we'll plant 10 trees to say thank you. The more you give, the more trees get planted. It's that simple. Your contribution can also honor a friend or family member, and we'll list their names on our website. Contribute online at kpcc.org. Help keep forests growing and public radio strong. You gotta keep it green. I'm 
Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to our panel on business and the ballot. Political consultants Rob Stutzman and Harvey Englander, former mayor of Beverly Hills Steve Webb, and labor advocate Madeline Janice, moderated by Joe Matthews. What's unfortunate in that process is here was a battle that, that primarily was between two developers that created a lot of angst and emotion in the city. Because from my perspective, from what I see in referendums, it's one-liners that get thrown out. Nobody's really studying the issues, so everybody's spending money. In that case, the owner of the Peninsula Hotel gave uh, this group a million dollars to fight this campaign. So we're, we're getting inundated with written materials, marketing materials. You've all received them, the one-liners that, that barely cover the truth. You don't know who to believe. And the emotions in the community rise up because, you know, neighbor starts yelling at neighbor over something that really is small in relative terms. And so it, it, I just thought it was an unfortunate circumstance. And now we're facing, again, another unfortunate circumstance. They're out gathering signatures for the Hilton Hotel project because there's going to be a, the proposal is for a new Waldorf Astoria in the city. And these uh, would be signatures to reverse that, to, to stop that. Right, after, after three years of hearings and study and, and a project that started off being one thing over here, by the time it gets through the process, has been modified significantly to deal with potential impacts and other problems. And to, quite frankly, in this case, the Hilton Hotel listened to a lot of the comments from the residents and made, I think, significant changes to the plan in response to that. And now this is heating up again. And while I have no proof of it, I suspect that the dollars are going to come from competing hotels and, and they'll, they'll stir up, you know, I call it the fear factor. They say to the parents of kids that go to the schools that are across the way, look what the construction's going to do. You know, your kids are going to get sick. And of course, the fact of the matter is it doesn't make any difference what development occurs. There's going to be demolition of buildings and they'll manage it. They'll do the construction mitigation that's required to keep those children safe. But it's the fear factor that gets put into this and stirs up the community. I want to bring Madeline in here on a, on a point and, and ask her specifically about labor and its roles in some of these different kinds of land use ballot measures. Um, particularly when it goes to businesses, I, in, in doing some reporting for a piece in the LA Times recently, I heard a lot of folks blaming labor interests for, for uh, producing a lot of these measures. I heard from sort of established business owners who often see themselves as fighting off new developments saying that one of the problems is that there are municipal unions in a lot of cities who want as much new money coming into city coffers as possible at contract time. So it's, it's these union folks have biased the system against us. We have to go fight and defend ourselves. On the other side, you have big box developers who, you know, who have gone to the ballot because they claim that their development to labor is pushing for too many concessions, protections, and so, you know, we've got to fight labor at the ballot box. I mean, I guess I might be called the, the Walmart argument. Are labor interests driving these number of measures? I think starting out with something that Harvey said earlier, it's important to take a step back. Harvey made it sound like almost like there's this kind of nice equilibrium with kind of a free market of, of interests, environmentalists and unions and business kind of all equally involved in these referendum battles, when actually the truth is that it is severely skewed. I mean, there are hundreds of millions of dollars of business interest money that have been put into these battles, and very little percentage-wise of, of union money or community money or environmental money that's gone on the other side. So the, the argument that I think you're referring to is more like the essence of our democracy really is electing our representatives and then the legislative process that ensues that involves a give and take. And, and yes, there have been problems of backdoor deals and, you know, in fact, business and developer influence and domination in some ways of, of the legislative process. But the answer is not to infuse millions of dollars into what I think is a fake initiative process. The answer is to bring more people into, the, into our democracy to elect new representatives, to bring more people into the, the give and take of what goes into figuring out development. So, you know, I think that there are challenges 
but that the, the answer is really about how do we open up the, the, the development process, the legislative process, and make it what, what it should be. I think what you're getting at in terms mm -hmm. of municipal unions mm -hmm. and the Walmart issue is workers and communities, because it's not just labor, mm -hmm. it's sure. really working people, and in particular low-wage workers, and community organizations and environmental organizations going to city councils and saying there is this huge problem. For example, there's this huge problem of working poverty in the city, and we need living wage ordinance. Or in Inglewood, there's a huge problem with Walmarts coming in, huge Walmarts coming in and saying, you know, and building these enormous stores, and all the mom and pop stores close down, and what you have in, as a result is a bunch of really bad jobs and really nothing else left except for the Walmart. So in the situation in Inglewood, it was actually Walmart who tried to subvert the democratic process and put a 71-page initiative on the ballot with a fake committee to welcome Walmart, is what they call themselves, spend a million dollars to try to pull the wool over people's eyes and prohibit any other land use involvement, any other legislative involvement in their proposal. Fortunately, we were able to, with a lot of grassroots effort, bring the truth to, to light, and that this was really Walmart trying to abuse the initiative process for its own gain. For, for those that don't know, how did it end in Inglewood? What was the political outcome? In, in the end, voters defeated the Walmart initiative 60 to 40 and realized that this was a matter of lack of respect, Walmart coming in and trying to essentially set up this little kingdom um, in the middle of Inglewood with never the city never being able ever again, kind of like a little bit even worse than what's going on in Thousand Oaks, never be able to get involved in what happened at that store or any future development. Let me um, go to somebody who is, has a big box client in, in Thousand Oaks. What makes it a big box, uh, It's big. It's big. Those Home Depots are big. I can never find the, uh, the back of the store. It just goes on forever. <laughs> so you're, you're representing the, the Home Depot side of this measure in, in Thousand Oaks. Um, you've actually, uh, I think DC Navigators, your company, is, is sort of represented the new guy coming in, the, whether it's Home Depot, which may or may not have a, an infill development. This would be, to be fair, a, a second Home Depot in, in, in right. Thousand Oaks. Or in Glendale, where you were on the, the side of uh, Rick Caruso and I believe the right. Americana development, which just had a gala opening. What is your thinking on this? Now, obviously in Thousand Oaks, you know, you didn't put this on the ballot. The other side did, but... No, and even in our, uh, it was Arcadia where we worked yeah. for, for Caruso, which never did reach the ballot. But in both instances, the clients we represent, as well as the, the client that was talked mm -hmm. about, the Beverly Hilton, so another issue that's going on now is we work with that within the current processes of, of government, which in, in California work, work pretty effectively. I mean, contrary to what people m may think, I've worked in the north and the south of this state, and a mall developer, as an antidote, will remain unnamed, who's pretty much used to showing up anywhere in the United States and being greeted as he gets off the plane with the local high school band and, and pom-poms, and because you're coming to town to build this, this great mall that most communities around America want. He was trying to build one in Northern California in a, in a Sacramento suburb with a council that was pretty pro-development, and it has taken forever to get, to get that approved. And he was always very upset that he wasn't being received the way he thought he should be received. And that council put him through a rather rigorous process to make sure it did reflect the values of the community as the duly elected council understood them. Caruso went right into the community to town halls, made himself available, got input from the citizens. Home Depot, who we're doing some work with now, I should, I should add our coalition of donors and supporters is larger than just Home Depot, but no question, Home Depot, this is aimed at them, so they're the primary funder of But almost funder all of the, of the money, you know, more than a half million dollars, there's yes. the expenditures of over three quarters of a million dollars. I mean, can't Home Depot or a, a big box store not necessarily come in and sort of overwhelm a, a smaller well, but, city? I mean, is But in this instance, Home Depot came into the city and has been working through the, the planning process. And, and just so everyone understands, that the site it's to go on is currently blight. It's an abandoned Kmart that weeds growing up through the, the parking lot. So they have worked, as any corporate citizen should, when they come to town and want to bring something, they want to do business there, but I also believe they're bringing an amenity that the, the city would want. So this has been aimed and directed at them by a single individual who is using this as an opportunity to keep competition out. In the interest so of fairness, it, so, 
Yeah, go ahead. Okay, go well, ahead. I mean, I guess your question, can you, yeah. can you come in and overwhelm a city? Yeah. I, I think could you, you... Bri could you bribe a majority <clears throat> a big enough company spending a big enough money? I think companies, though, have figured it out. I, I got, you know, someone like Caruso's, I, th I think, the platinum standard to look at. He comes and becomes, it's his name. People know they can they can call and talk to him about it. And he comes into a community and makes it clear, I'm going to give you something that you're going to love coming to. And takes great pride in that. And I think that's that's the smart paradigm. And I think more and more of these companies are, are figuring out that's the way to come to town. But I think we also have to point out, for example, in the case of Arcadia with Mr. Caruso, the voters sponsored by Westfield, my client, approved two ballot initiatives in Arcadia. I think, Rob, before you were involved working for Caruso, or perhaps your firm was, I don't know. But one of them stopped Caruso from having paid parking next to a mall that had free parking. The other one stopped Caruso from a plan that he had to put the first billboards in the city of Arcadia. These were both plans that had been supported publicly by a majority of the city council, in fact, unanimously by the city council, prior to them going to the ballot, and they were defeated by the voters. And there were, there were two. You know, so I, I think there is a, a coalition that is built in some of these things. And I've been on both sides. I've been opposing, you know, in Beverly Hills, I represented the Montage Hotel and fighting a referendum in El Segundo. I, I represented Jim Thomas and fighting a referendum in Westlake Village, for example, a couple of years ago. Lowe's Corporation, another big box, they couldn't get their proposal through the uh, city council, similar to, in some respects, the, the Inglewood situation with Walmart. Lowe's then went to the ballot with a, with a document that really threw environmental and traffic laws and CEQA and a lot of other things under the bus. And the owner of, of the Dewitt Centers, my client, came forward with a coalition of people, including city council members, planning commissioners, others, and fought the Lowe's initiative. And, and we're, we, we were successful in defeating it. So I think that there's an equilibrium in this that occurs. I'm, I'm a great believer that, it, you know, for the most part, good developments get approved and, and, and bad developments don't. Occasionally, that is untrue because of the nature of, of communities and developers. And uh, as for Thousand Oaks, I'm a great advocate of, of Home Depot taking the blighted store that they have in Thousand Oaks, which has weeds growing through the parking lot, has been closed for seven or eight years, and reopening it instead of going to another neighborhood and building a new store. If you've already got a blighted store that you already own the land, I'm the first person that says, let's go, let's go open it up. There's, there's a distinction here, though. It's nothing relevant to the discussion, yeah. though, Joe. Of, in California, I mean, we have the, the ballot box accessible to, to us as citizens, really unlike anywhere else in the country, obviously. It's kind of one of our birthrights. And, and there's a difference, though, between a referendum, which would be to take a, a decision made by a duly elected government and to place that decision before the voters to, to reverse it. Because then something has worked all the way through the process of, of our environmental laws and, our, and whatever the local planning and, and zoning laws are. It goes through a commission. There's public hearings by California law that you must go through. So the process has worked. There is a result. And then you could go qualify for the ballot, the opportunity to referend that decision. Then there is creation of new statute, which is what's going on in Thousand Oaks. Long before there is a decision by a duly elected council that looks at this process that the law lays out they must go through, there was this preemptive statute that's now put before the voters. Via initiative. Via initiative, by gathering signatures. That's, that's clearly aimed at Home Depot. Now, which is going to have impacts on a lot of different businesses and citizens in the city if it, if it passes. Now, I would make it really, I would make it very clear that I view what we do, my firm and I, we're, we're advocates. We're like attorneys. You hire us and we to win an election, we'll go win it. So I'm not trying to draw white hat and black hat distinctions. But as, an, as someone that also cares about public policy and observes it, I do think it's interesting, though, that there's this big difference between referendum and preemptive uh, statutes like we're seeing in Thousand Oaks. I think it's an interesting public policy issue. Let me point but, but out Joe, one, one me, important, one important just... discrepancy, if I might, and that is the approvals that Home Depot needed to get in Thousand Oaks to open this store are not referendable approvals. So you yeah, you know, if, if, if I can just say that, that, that this really shouldn't be about you two guys battling uh, <laughs> sure. uh, about uh, Home Depot and Thousand Oaks, I think there are broader public policy issues that are at play here. And quite frankly, I'm a firm believer in our representative form of government. I think to either by way of initiative to legislate or by referendum to overturn planning issues results in bad decisions and bad government. 
our Constitution, our Bill of Rights that has lasted for a long, long time, has worked pretty well. Nobody ever voted for it other than our representatives. And I think you elect your officials based on their abilities, and if they make bad decisions, you elect somebody else and you get rid of them. I think that there's a role for the initiative process. And go back to the founding of the initiative process, which was to really challenge the influence of big business and money in politics. And so there's a role for it. The problem we have in LA and California is that right now, the influx of business money into this process has led to fraud and deception, rampant fraud and deception, where business owners don't say who they actually are and what they actually want. They have to be the committee, for example, to welcome Walmart or the coalition when, when it's a fake coalition. It's not a real coalition. It's funded by the business interests. We have had three examples in LA County of living wage ordinances that have been passed by genuine coalitions of low wage workers, of community leaders, of environmentalists, of responsible businesses going to a legislative body. And the, the businesses affected spend a million dollars to put that on the ballot, and they claim they're living wage supporters. They go out and they say, please sign here to put a living wage on the ballot. They don't want a living wage. What they want is to defeat the living wage. And they think that by pulling the wool over people's eyes, and with a lot of money they can do it, they can use the initiative process to undermine real democracy. I'm here. You're listening to a program on business and the ballot on Sokolo Radio. This Wednesday, June 4th, Sokolo presents Brick Lane, a screening and conversation with director Sarah Gavron and actress Tanishta Chatterjee, moderated by Los Angeles Times columnist Megan Down. The Sony Pictures classic is based on Monica Ali's celebrated novel of London's Bangladeshi community. And this Thursday, June 5th, Peter Gosselin, National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, asks, is the ownership society dead? His talk is based on the themes in his latest book, High Wire, The Precarious Financial Lives of American Families. Gosselin will explain how families, from the working poor to the reasonably rich, should think about their current financial condition and what can be done about it. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information and to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to our program on business and the ballot in a moment. Stay tuned to Sokolo Radio. Mohammed Nader drives an ambulance. He gets paid $82 per month. His boss says all he has to do is save lives and try not to get killed on the streets of Karachi, Pakistan. They took him, you know, out of the ambulance for shooting purpose. They wanted to kill him because of his appearance. I'm Steve Inskeep. We'll spend a week with people who keep one of the world's largest cities running, starting tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Fifty years ago Tuesday, voters in L.A. considered whether the Dodgers should build a shiny new ballpark in Chavez Ravine. People will say, now, was it really that controversial? I cannot tell you how controversial. Hi, I'm Kitty Feldy. Starting Tuesday, we'll tell you the real story of how Brooklyn's Dodgers came to Los Angeles. Listen during Morning Edition and All Things Considered here on 89.3 KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh, my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little, too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon, starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. This is 89.3 KPCC, Pasadena, Los Angeles, a public service of Pasadena City College, where student success is the top priority. Information at Pasadena.edu. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, let's hear questions from the Sokalo audience for our panel. 
Political consultants Rob Stutzman and Harvey Englander, former mayor of Beverly Hills Steve Webb, and labor advocate Madeline Janice, moderated by Joe Matthews. Hi, my name is Mike. Uh, my wife and I live in a town near New York City. I'll leave it unnamed right now. But we fought more than a couple of different development issues in the town that we lived in, and there was no initiative process whatsoever. And we saw a planning board over and over again turn down the clear will of the people and approve some developments that were absolutely horrendous. So my gut feeling is that it's a good thing that there be an initiative process. But starting with Madeline, don't you think one of the other solutions is to limit the amount of money that people like developers can spend on an initiative process? It's challenging to come up with the right answer. I, I agree with you that the initiative process does serve as an important safety valve. The problem is we have to be really careful. I mean, I really think there are two issues. One is the question of fraud and deception and truth, and how do you ensure that there's truthfulness so you don't have fake slate mailers, you don't have deceptive front committees, that who's, the people whose money are in it is front and center and has to be on the mailings, which is not required right now, by and large. So that's the first thing, if we could figure that out. The amount of money to be spent, I mean, it's definitely worth looking at. To limit it to some degree, it could be helpful. It's a challenging thing, because oftentimes you do have community groups that raise money and need to be able to do things like send mailers and be real in the process. So how much do you limit it when you want to get your message out, but you want to do it truthfully? So I think there is some balance there, but you know, I don't think it's an all or nothing. I'm Paul Norland. Can initiatives be used to defeat projects that comply with the zoning and general plan? Yes. Sure. Yes. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so can the referendum. That's what happens. You see initiatives today that are out in some communities where they're basically saying that any development over, let's say, 50,000 square feet, regardless of whether it meets the general plan and the zoning, to go to the voters. So now they're taking it away from the representative form of government. They're taking it away from people that are going to study the issues, and they basically want everything to go to a vote. So you would then get inundated with 20, 30, 40 developments a year being called on to make decisions. Then why elect your representatives? By the way, in Ventura County, various cities have got something called the SOAR initiatives. It was originally called Save Our Agricultural Resources. And in the 15 or 20 years that the SOAR initiatives have been in place, there have been a total of nine elections held, of which the will of the council has been upheld five of the nine times. So it appears with these kinds of initiatives, the system appears to work. That is a response to the general argument that when you put something to the voters, that it's essentially a block on development of a certain size. That, I mean, that, that, that is the argument against that. that. There has been over and over this argument, going back to Parma, Ohio, which was one of the first cities 20 years to go to do this, where famously there was very little development in Parma where you needed voter approval for development and all sorts of development ringing it. Uh, the New York Times sort of wrote a big story about this 20 years ago. Hi, my name is Patricia Logato, and I work at one of the hotels on Century Boulevard that we fought so hard to get, and the Supreme Court has refused to hear you guys. My question is, are the hotels going to continue to fight the workers? Every hotel that I represent will be glad to hold a union election tomorrow. To provide a little context here about this argument for people who may not know, that there's fight over living wage at LAX, hotels, and there's also a unionization campaign. The position of the hotels is to have a vote of NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, supervised vote. The union movement in this country thinks those votes don't work very well, allow for a lot of employer intimidation, and want folks to be able, by signing cards, to unionize. And the, the living wage has been a big part of that argument down in the hotels. Actually, there really are two issues. They're related, but they're not the same. And the, the living wage ordinance passed by the city council is a legislative, it's a piece of legislation that thousands of people and hundreds of workers went down over a year, period of a year to participate in hearings and make compromises. And then it was adopted after everyone was heard by the city council. And the hotels have spent now millions of dollars to take that to the court, to put it on the ballot, to challenge it. So the frustration that you hear from these women who have been fighting so hard to make $10 an hour is simply, why are the hotels fighting so hard and when are you going to stop? Hi, my name is Doug Eberhardt. I'm one of those people who serves on a neighborhood council in Los Angeles. 
And I think we spend about 90% of our time dealing with development issues. Now I'm down in San Pedro. I wish we had the referendum available to us, an initiative process available to us, but our local uh, issues have to be taken up citywide across the city of 450 square miles and 4 million people. So we're left with dealing strictly with the process. Here's the problem with the process. And I'd like to hear if you have any ideas to fix it. CEQA process, the city planning process is all very rigid for us. The developer brings a project and essentially what we do in the two-year process is react to what they want. So the question is, can the process be made more flexible? Can we get developers to actually come and talk to us and deal with all of the issues, not just the ones that uh, they want to deal with, but they're unwilling to talk to us about, such as density, for instance. Let me give a great example, because I represent a number of developers in a number of different cities. And for example, we just did completed a project in Beverly Hills, 235 mid-rise condominiums designed by Richard Meyer. It's an eight-acre site. Six acres is going to be open space. Pretty amazing project. And for a year and a half prior to ever getting to the planning commission, we went out and we met with every organization. If there were five people who would get together and hear us, we would go meet with them. And I've had clients where we've walked, the owner of the company has walked door to door and talked to people. We've held neighborhood coffees. So I, I don't know if you're going to legislate a change to do that. I will tell you that advocates such as myself who work on behalf of developers in a lot of different cities are great believers in getting out in front and meeting with the community and trying to deal with as many of these issues as possible so that it's not a reactive situation. I have seen probably thousands of developers over many years, and I think there is a really big difference between developers who go out and talk to people, but they're really not interested in listening. They really just want to go through the motions and talk and incorporating the really tough stuff like good jobs, like how are we going to get more affordable housing, like how are we going to include green space and parks in this development, how are we going to make sure that it meets the needs of the community. There are very few developers who really sit down and negotiate with communities and incorporate all those things. There are developers like that, and there are an increasing number of those, and let's hope that we see an increasing trend in that direction. Just the thing I was going to add real quick was, from a developer's perspective, and developers come in all shapes and sizes and ill will and goodwill, uh, but it's much easier for a developer to want to sit down and have that dialogue if they really feel like it, it's a dialogue. The gentleman that posed the question seemed like a very reasonable person that there could be a dialogue with. That's not always the case when a developer comes to talk to people in the community. They, they don't feel like there's a platform for a dialogue to take place. So that's an, it's important for it to be a two-way street. Hi, uh, I'm Jim Lamacco. For uh, uh, more than 20 years, I've been involved um, in land use decisions in Pasadena. My question is, I'd like to see better information going out to voters, especially who is paying for the uh, initiative and referendum battles. Do, you, do any of you have any ideas about how that could be done? State legislature, unfortunately. It's not something that's local. You have state laws that regulate and mandate how much can be given, when you have to disclose, and when you don't have to disclose. And that's a problem. You don't always know who's there. The short answer to your question is that there could be some very important reforms done at the state level, and that business interests, by and large, have blocked those reforms. But we have to keep on trying. For example, there's a big problem with what are called slate mailers. And basically, the truth is that anybody can pay to be on those, mailer, those mailers. But what they make you think is that all of the people that are being endorsed on that mailer support the position on a particular ballot initiative. And that's been used extremely deceptively. And you have no information on these slate mailers about who is actually paying for them and how they connect to each other. The same thing on other types of pieces of mail. We could just make sure that the right information about who's paying for this is on that piece of mail. That's been blocked, to, by and large, at the state level, So, but we should keep trying. It, it, just to be clear, we have a lot of disclosure laws in the state. I mean, the, the mail that Harvey and I are putting out now in Thousand Oaks lists both of our major funders by law. There's actually a local requirement. There is a local requirement on either additional disclosure. You can go online and find now daily within what, 10, two weeks of the election, 
uh, contributions have to be posted within 24 hours. The, the information is there uh, if you want to find it, and it's on, literally on the mail uh, when it arrives. I agree. Slate mailers, uh, there does need to be additional reform because business and labor spends a lot of money, I, I think, very deceptively on those. My name's Noel Rodriguez. Now that more and more hotels, the Radisson, the Four Points, the Westin, are breaking ranks and deciding to listen to hotel workers, respect them, negotiate union contracts, pay a living wage, now that more and more hotels are starting to do what Madeline's been talking about, is it possible that you would consider letting the Supreme Court decision stand and letting the living wage stand? As far as I know, the hotels are going to abide by the law. Why would you expect they would do otherwise? There's, there's no plan to referend again, essentially, Harvey. I believe that period has expired. That's some news. Actually, it hasn't expired, but that's really great news. I'm wondering if someone on the panel or several could comment on what, how the internet, blogging, and new technologies have impacted this process. Great question. What we're seeing happen with the internet and politics, it has the greatest impact the, the more local you go. I think people that are publishing themselves on, on the web uh, are, are being able to talk to neighbors in a way that's been inaccessible in the past and is able to have a larger relative impact than you would if you were writing about a statewide initiative to 7 million other voters as opposed to just people in your community. So the, the web is, is very important. Uh, people that have a following on the web become very important constituents to either side of a campaign, and that's really citizen empowerment. It's one, I think, one of the... To people like us in the campaign business, it's a little scary because we don't necessarily know what to do and how to influence that. And um, it makes it harder for us to be able to control all the information people get from a I think from a citizen participation perspective, which I'm all for, I think it's a, it's a very exciting development, and I think we'll see uh, the web become increasingly critical, particularly on issues like this, that at the local level. I also think that it kind of neutralizes the issue of dollars, because you it can does. run uh, a very effective campaign one way or the other with minimal dollars uh, using the Internet. I think that government really needs to put more into developing the web as a tool. I mean, it, it is challenging to get citizen involvement in major development decisions. And so we need to get, we, and I speak as a commissioner, we need to get creative um, about how we use all the tools at our disposal to, to, to make it accessible to people so that regular people can be involved in decisions that are going to impact their lives. I don't think we figured that out yet, um, but there are a lot of opportunities. I'm David. I appreciate your comments, this gentleman's comments, Mr. Stuffman, that when one's signing a petition, you can read the initiative. But even if I read the entire initiative, I probably won't understand it. And, and my guess is even lawyers in this room won't understand it. So uh, uh, I don't think that's anyone's fault, but that's part of the reason why we elect legislators. And so in terms of transparency, it sounds like you guys all agree that if things were more transparent, it would be fair. So why not have some sort of blue ribbon panel that makes a criteria, like one page, exactly the way it's presented, who funded it, X, Y, and Z, so everyone can be on the same page? I think you have some excellent suggestions there. The, the way it works now, there's what's called a title and summary, which is supposed to cut through the, the legalese to give you some idea what it is. The problem is, is we let lawyers prepare those as well. And so they're often not discernible either as to what really the measure may be about. Same way when it appears on your ballot, it's the title and summary that's on your ballot. I think your suggestion of, a, of disclosure and transparency on who is paying for that signature is an excellent suggestion, because I think it's information that the citizen would value if they could have that information. The problem is, this is what I mean by the, the, the petitions available to you, is Signature gatherers are mercenary, more mercenary even than Harvey and I, and they are paid in a commodity okay, pricing, right? And the more they turn in the hour, the more money they make. And so they really do, unfortunately, I think, tell people about anything to make them sign it. And I think it is a problem. I think disclosing who is paying them and how much. How much is my signature worth? People might be surprised to find out. Sometimes it's with the five bucks. 
That's good information. I think would be helpful to the process. I think it went up to ten bucks in the Montage Hotel. <laughs> well, it's Beverly Hills prices. <laughs> By the way, some way to fight poverty. In Thousand Oaks, just recently, the mobile home park renters got ten thousand signatures in about forty days, all by volunteers. That's right. To put an initiative yeah. on the ballot. So it's still possible <laughs> to do it when you've got a dedicated group of people who are willing to spend the time. And, and whether I agree with their issue or disagree, but I commend them for going out there and doing the hard work. Because I've got to tell you something a lot of people pay a lot of lip service to these issues, but they won't go and do the work and they won't stand out in front of the Ralph's grocery store for six or eight hours and get the signatures and do the sales work. And I don't know anything about this issue, but I will, I will tell you, my, my hat goes off to them because they got 10,000 signatures in about 40 days. They didn't pay for one signature. So I guess we have consensus on truth in advertising and in this sort of politics. And I, I, except for me, I'm the dissenter. I, I'm in favor of lying in politics because it, <laughs> well, you, you, it keeps it, the reporters in Came from the LA Times. That's that. <laughs> there you have it. Um, thank you all. You've been listening to a panel on business and the ballot with Rob Stutzman, Harvey Englander, Steve Webb, Madeline Janice, and moderator Joe Matthews. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. More than 12 million Americans will soon live in age-segregated communities with limited local government and all the services a retiree could want. I'm Larry Mantle, and next time on Air Talk, writer 